Devin and I thought that a good way to use our time tonight would be to answer questions. So to just open the floor up and, you know, some of your questions might be, how do we take this practice home with us? What do we do in, in our jobs, in our ordinary lives? Or you might have a practice question that ties some things together. It really is open to whatever, and we'll use the answers as a way to kind of cultivate a Dhamma talk out of that. So, yeah. Yeah, so I've been sort of feeling into the energy of the day. Have you all noticed that the energy shifted a little bit today? How are you doing with it? It can feel like a lot. Yeah. And I think especially I sort of feel it in the field. There's a lot of energy. We've built up all this energy and the silence is a good container for that energy, right? We've made it very simple and silent so that you could go deep and you could gather a lot of samadhi. But I would say this time right now, this evening into tomorrow morning, most important part of the retreat. Because what we have to do is learn how to hold that energy, right? And Tuari's been giving us lessons in it. She's got a lot of energy. She knows how to hold it. And so that's what we're having to feel. Sometimes out of retreat, it's like the system doesn't quite know how to hold this level of samadhi when we're talking and when we're engaging. And there's so much going on. And we can feel this kind of flood and overwhelm and ungrounded. And I get very speedy often. So the invitation through this Q&A, through the evening tomorrow, to see if you can just expand a little bit, grow your, your container for energy. And slowing down is helpful for that. Feeling your belly, you know, moving from your belly, that's helpful. This metaphor, I think I shared it, this salt water, you know, with a salt, handful of salt water in the cup, it's hard to hold that you're kind of becoming a lake with your samadhi, you know, and we want to be able to take all that out into the world, but not in a kind of manic way. So can you hold that, the container? Yeah. Okay. So what are your questions? Hey, um, thank you. If, <laughs> uh, God, I, well, I, I genuinely do want to say thank you, but I'm afraid of spending how much time saying thank you I want to spend saying thank you, so thank you a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm curious about, you guys put a lot of emphasis over the course of this retreat on remaining in your body. Um, in sort of channeling your experiences through mindfulness within the body. And I'm curious about how to carry that through my day-to-day -day life. Is it a question of, you know, just picking your favorite part of the body and having that, that be the thing that you're sort of like focused on? Or is it experience to experience, moment to moment? Um, well, I think this idea of what it means to be in the body is kind of weird because it never stays the same. What you think is being in the body when you first start practice, very different than when you've been in practice for a while. So some ways that I gauged, and for me, I didn't have a clue what that meant. Uh, I went into a practice meeting with my teacher. I told him I was having all this panic attack, and he goes, Okay, so now we're going to get you in the body. And I'm thinking, uh, okay, <laughs> I thought I was in the body. <laughs> I know I'm at your house, so. <laughs> but a way, two ways I begin to, to think about being in the body, and this may help now and then change as you go, is one if you notice that you are experiencing the sense doors, not as listening, but hearing, so you just, you're aware of hearing, 
You're aware of seeing, not necessarily looking at. You're aware of sensations rather than identify what the sensations are. So it's just sensory, vedana. These are general terms that help us uh, feel into what's happening. So the felt sense is one way, like constantly asking yourself, how does it feel, this experience? The sense doors, making sure that if you're thinking a lot, can you include what the eyes are doing, what the ears are doing, what the nose is doing, body? And then, so you have this kind of sensory experience. And then there's a way in which... um, this kind of uh, uh, in-the-body attitude is to begin to notice when you know what you're doing. So I'm washing the dishes, and that's what I'm doing, versus uh, thinking about what you're doing. So you just learn to begin to experience the felt sense of doing something versus thinking about what you're doing or thinking about something else and you're doing something. So if you're walking to the store, you know you're walking to the store and you stay there with the whole walking to the store rather than using walking to the store as a means to think about something else. You see, so that's the way I think of being in the body. But then that may change over time as you get used to that something else might come in. Or you might not even be able to notice this whole sensory experience, but I can just know that I know what I'm doing. And so that it starts there, and then you just keep feeling and listening more and more to the body. Thank you. There's a hand right here. hate to have you running back and forth. Dawn. <laughs> Thank you. While we've been on retreat, we've had the benefit of all of this simplicity. There's nobody like infringing on our space. All of our needs are met. But when we go back into the real world, we have to start making choices. Things are genuinely good or bad for us. And we have to set boundaries and we have to make goals for ourselves and decide how we want to spend our time. How can we use what we've learned this week to do some of those harder actions and choices? It's such a good question. And I've heard this from several of you today coming in with this sense of we have to make a lot of decisions in our lives. You know, here you just follow the schedule. And so there's one teaching on intention in Pali, it's Chaitana, um, that I find very helpful. I was sharing this with one of you today. Um, you know, in all the teachings of not-self, we learn to say, not me, not mine, right? My body is not mine. None of this is owned by anybody, except, the Buddha said, our one true possession is our intention. That's so profound. I feel like we could spend a whole lifetime just working with that one teaching. Oh, it's all driven by intention, that's what's, it's intention is there every moment. It's what gets us out of bed. It's what keeps us breathing, right? All through our day, we're moving with intention, whether we're conscious of it or not. And so what we're doing, I think, more and more here is we're building the awareness of that intention. And a little bit like I was speaking about in the talk, like we have agency when we're aware that we are our, the owner of our intentions. We have power then. Then you can really see, I have a choice about how I'm going to live. And the more we're mindful and aware, the more we know, oh, I'm going to live in alignment with non-harming. Or I'm going to live in alignment with generosity. And we can choose those particular values and they can guide us all the way through. So you can even use that as your North Star when you're making decisions what decision is going to support my practice or in whatever practice that is of generosity, of patience, of kindness, of discipline. 
So you can use that question, what, is this going to be onward leading? Is this going to support my practice? Is this in alignment with my integrity? And sometimes we ask that question and we don't know, right? Both options are good and maybe it feels irrelevant. But I think as long as we're really clear about the question and the intention to live in that way, in harmony with our true selves, with what we care about, what matters, right? Living through this intention to benefit others as well as ourselves, then you can trust the rest. You know, it's not always going to turn out the way we want. Like we can really set our compass very clearly with intention. And then there's a kind of surrender to reality, you know, knowing you can't actually control the result. You can trust that you're guiding yourself in a good way because you know that inner voice that has integrity and truth and, and clarity. And then the last thing I would say, so clear intention, let go of expectations of results. And then really, I forgot my last thing, <laughs> but I'll come to it. Just sit with it. This is it. Be comfortable with uncertainty. You know, so much of this practice is realizing that we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And sometimes it takes a while to make a decision. You know, it takes a while for wisdom, that deep intuitive wisdom to come. And so to have patience, you know, and to really know if you have a big decision, can you sit with the not knowing for a while? Can you be comfortable with the uncertainty? Um, And let the wisdom arise naturally on its own timing, like that. Sometimes you won't have that freedom. You might just have to decide. But I think it's a good discipline to train in in sitting with not knowing for a while before you do make a decision. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sophia. Yeah, Brian. Um, so my question is uh, really just around uh, nutrition. So uh, here, of course, like it's vegan and it's vegetarian, so it's easy to kind of stay on that schedule. But I know that's also really important for the body. So what foods or what should we be really mindful of when we're uh, the type of diet that we have? What food should we really be thinking about when it comes to taking care of ourselves? That's a, a give, don't eat the homies. <laughs> so this, this is also a, an important question because the Buddha was asked this also. I mean, there was a lot of energy around. A lot of people got angry with him because he wanted, they wanted him to require his uh, monks and monastics, nuns, to be a vegetarian. And he would not. And the way it's said is, is that he did not want uh, the monks and nuns to go hungry because if the only thing that was being offered for Donna was a meat, then they wouldn't be able to eat and that that would cause more suffering. So he didn't put this requirement of vegetarian or uh, veganism onto his practitioners. Some monastics do eat meat and some don't. It's really a choice, the way that they, the way their sect is and the way they, they live their lives. But one thing, since I'm not vegetarian, one thing I could not help but begin to pay attention to was two things. One, it's paying attention to what you put in your body. Because if you begin to practice, you begin to realize that this body has to break down whatever you eat. And so it is, if you put, uh, like you can eat paper and the body will break it down, but it won't necessarily understand why you're eating paper. (laughs) You know, because... Babies will eat paper if you put it there. They will just eat and eat and eat. And so you can't, you have to be careful about what you're putting in the body. 
And then two, so, so that you're giving the body enough uh, sustenance for it to take care of you, to take care of itself. And you're actually caring for it, not overloading it with uh, things that can't break down so much. But the second thing is beginning to pay attention to where your food is coming from. And the biggest sort of energy that I had when I was at home was getting meat from humane butchers and getting meat from uh, getting meats and vegetables and all of this food from places that I felt like paid attention to what they were doing. And it just so happened I lived close to a farmer's market. And so that farmer's market would show up every week and then I would go and buy the food from there. So in, in a way, what you're doing is there's a requirement that you recognize, almost like in an indigenous tradition, that the meat you're eating isn't actually a piece of cardboard. It is a living being that has given its life for you. But that's the same for uh, spinach. It's the same for tomatoes. All these beings that we eat, they are living beings that have given our lives, their lives for us to eat. And so there's a recognition that you are um, consuming living beings. And in that way, you don't want to be wasteful. You don't want to be, you know, just um, uh, careless in the way that you're eating and thinking about food. So in that way, you can eat at whatever is healthy for you. You may not be vegetarian, or you may need to be a vegan uh, for health-wise. Whatever that is, you're going to take the eating process and the nutrition seriously within this context of doing no harm, being kind, and having a level of restraint. See? Oh, over here. And then we'll come back. We have Don going back and forth. <laughs> so, so this is a question I've um, heard answered in kind of closing parts of past retreats, and it and the wisdom I heard before has fled my mind. So. Um, but I remember it was really helpful when I heard about it. So, um, so here we go. I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels like I've discovered hidden treasure. Right? This amazing everything that's happened over the last few days. So there's a part of me, of course, there's a part of me that wants to just go and be present and have that serve its function, but there's this other part of me that wants to tell everybody, mm-hmm. you know, explain it all, just tell, tell all about it. And um, <clears throat> I know that's probably not the best thing to do. So I would love to hear the kind of wisdom of how to titrate that, how to balance it, what, you know, just how to, how to handle that, that, uh, that sense of hidden treasure and, and, the, and the urge to share it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say exactly what the other person told you. (laughs) We'll see if it's the same thing. So when somebody asks how your retreat is, and you have that urge to want to say everything, two words, two magic words, or I guess it's three words. (laughs) A little loopy. Three words. It was good. (laughs) And usually that's enough. You know, they're satisfied. They're like, oh, great. You had a good week. Me too. And then they'll tell you all about their week, right? They just want to know you're okay. You know, you ate good food. Like, it was okay. You're fine. So really magic phrase. You know, I use it still, getting back from teaching or whatever. Oh, it's good. It's good. (laughs) And then, you know, over time, there might be people in your life who actually want to know more. And you'll know, you know, they'll ask you questions. And that, I think you can really sort of titrate your answers to those questions. And here's another beautiful practice. You did it. 
in your triads today with Dawn, mindful speaking and listening, that when someone's asking you, you can really use this practice of mindfully listening to them and looking for what are they really asking? You know, what do they need to hear about your retreat? Do they, are they interested because they want to know about the practice? You know, and you can answer from this sort of this practice place of information about what meditation is and what you were doing, or they want to know about you, right? What was it for you? Or is it something else they're needing, you know, that would be helpful for them to hear? So you can kind of listen for that through line about what would be the most useful way, not the entire blow by blow, right? But really that for that particular person at that particular time, what's going to be most useful for them and for you. Because here's the other piece. We're so sensitive right now. You know? I mean, we're probably more mindful than we think we are. You might find that when you go to the airport tomorrow. <laughs> right? So much stimulus, so much going on, so sensitive. Sometimes that's beautiful. Sometimes it's just the heart is open and everyone is just so gorgeous and you love them so much and the world is bright. And other times it's just way too much, you know, and to share what you're feeling is going to feel really difficult. You know, if you overshare, it's like whatever process you're in right now, that's so sensitive and so personal and private to you, it'll feel a little bit like overexposure, you know, too soon. So we want to really protect that process. You're still metabolizing so much, you know. One of you in your wisdom just said to me, like, there's a whole process of first articulating to myself what this was about, then being able to put that into words, and then into words that someone else will understand, you know? So it's a whole arc that you're still very much in. And maybe you felt that when you came out of silence for a couple hours today, like, I'm not ready to talk about this retreat. I'm still in it. I don't know. So to give yourself that gift of a lot of personal time, you know, let whatever is unarticulated, just let it cook in you before you share it. And then can be powerful with your particular person or people to do it in a very mindful way with someone who can hold that for you and mirror it back and understand you. Sometimes sharing can be very, very powerful, but at the right time and with the right people. Um, with a lot of care for both of you. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Graham. First of all, thank you all so much for holding this amazing container. It was exactly what I imagined for my New Year's. Um, so I have a question uh, on behalf of um, myself and those of us who are just starting to become mindfulness meditation teachers. Uh, what are some of the top things you wish you had known uh, when you had started teaching that might be helpful to others? Um, it's been a little bit frustrating to me because there is no real handbook in terms of how to do this, and there's so many different ways. So a couple of nuggets would be useful. And then uh, the second part of my question is, um, to me, it's very clear that I want to be a joy-informed um, you know, teacher in that uh, that's just mostly my experience in life. Um, and you know, as an empath, I can understand other people's pain and I can understand my own, but mostly I want to really inspire people through that joy. Um, and I do have a lot of stories about my own life and, you know, other people around me with that vulnerability because I think that's important to teach. But I know um, that for me, I don't want to be the type of teacher who shows up um, and is sharing the heaviness of all the things that have happened to me. Um, that just doesn't feel authentic to me. So we'd love to hear a little bit of perspective on that, too. Well, um, it, teaching or even sharing, it's not just as teachers. We've all had experiences here, so we're all going to want to share our experiences. And 
Probably the best advice or suggestion, invitation, I guess, encouragement I could give you is this recognition that you only teach what you know. And that phrase means two things. It's an edict that says, don't teach things that you don't know. But it's also this realization that you may think you're teaching something, but if you don't know it, you're not teaching it. So you can only teach what you actually know. And the best way for a teacher or sharing of the Dhamma, that wisdom to grow, is you have to keep practicing. There's no other way around it. because, And the, probably the best way is any long-term student will tell you, they had the Dhamma, they're going along, it was great, and then all of a sudden, it just stopped. It was just nothing. Like, I've been practicing? What happened? Like, I lost it. Where did it go? I don't know what happened. And what, what that is, is it's like a plateau. We ride our practice, ride our practice, ride our practice. But if you don't encourage yourself to keep going deeper into the practice, you meet the end of where your practice is at. And you will need to actually practice deeper in order to understand deeper and understand deeper. So as teachers, we are always practicing deeper and deeper and deeper than where we know. And in society, there's a way that we learn something. Oh, I learned how to teach mindfulness, so I'm going to teach mindfulness. And you can do that, but you can only do what it is that you've already learned. So unless you keep practicing further, so long-term students, they reach this plateau, and then it seems like the practice falls out. If they can inspire themselves to go a little deeper, then it stirs all back up again. And they go along, go along, I got it, going along, and then boom, it just stops. It does that for teachers, it just stops. And we just, we've reached the edge of our practice is what I call that. And you have to keep practicing deeper. That's why teachers constantly show up on retreats and constantly do long retreats. And we're constantly practicing again um, because emptiness is only emptiness for what you know it to be. But you, but it's like Joseph and I, we were just listening to Joseph Goldstein. He's like, the Dhamma's vast. So what I think of emptiness today, I gave a Dhamma talk on the Four Noble Truths in 2015, and I wish I could take that off. Like, can I take that down? Can I get that off the internet somewhere? Because my understanding of the Four Noble Truths today is not the same. And so there's a way in which teaching is not like academia, teaching Dhamma meditation. It's not. You're going to have to keep practicing to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And the second part of joy, it's not just teaching with joy, but teaching or sharing the Dhamma to me in any way has to come from something that you actually practice with. So if you want joy to inform your teaching, then you have to practice cultivating joy in all kinds of scenarios. Places when you don't have any joy, can you find some? And if you have joy, what happens if I share it? What happens if I don't? What happens if I share it and the person I'm sharing it with is like, no, there's no joy. No, really, there's joy. You can feel it. No, there's no joy. <laughs> what, what does that do for you? Do you somehow like push against them and try to convince them that, no, there's joy? Or do you... Do, are you able to, to kind of feel into where they're at and recognize what's actually happening here? So that's, this is the difficulty of it because Dhamma is not a mental constructed thing. It's a living, breathing being. And the more that we practice with it and share it and be with it, the more we learn. So that's part of how you're going to, that's how joy is going to instruct your teaching is because you're going to practice with joy all the time. I'm going to say one more thing about that. Um, I'm going to talk about Tiberi. 
You know, her joy is so powerful because she's been through it all. You know? And kind of like you say, you have the stories too. And it's important for your students and your friends and all of our communities to know us as well-rounded humans, right? And humans feel the whole range. So you're going to be able to meet your students who are suffering because you've met your own suffering, right? So teaching from a place of joy, yes, that's genuine because you've also gone through the suffering, you know, and you can show that. You can show them that you suffer. It's normalizing, you know, for us to all be human. So I think there's something powerful that I've learned in my own process of teaching with all of these beautiful colleagues and peers is that the more we have really metabolized and digested our own lives and then teach from that transparency, that's the powerful transmission, right? Not just the, oh, I got to be good all the time because I meditate and that solved all my problems, you know? There's this phrase now, toxic positivity. Sometimes we can feel that in the meditation world, like, oh, but we just found the answer and solved all our mess, you know, we're fixed. But the opposite is true, right? The more we feel dharma, the more we practice dharma, the more we feel, the more human we become. So we don't want to erase that when we start sharing it. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, and I think just to clarify, what I was saying is that I've noticed that some number of teachers show up with a style that feels very heavy to me, like uh, they're still suffering in uh, the current moment. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I've experienced a lot of challenging things, um, but I've I've worked through them and I look back at them with a lot of positivity and, mm-hmm. and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you've probably heard this before, our friend Semine Selassie. She talks about uh, teach from the scars, not the wounds. I think that's what you're saying. You know, when we tell our personal stories, we want it to make, make sure it's a story that's really healed. Otherwise, it's like too vulnerable for us and too vulnerable for them if we're still processing it. I love what you just said, and I think that's what I was trying to say. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, Ivan had a question. Right in front, yeah, yeah. Can you speak more about sensitivity and... how to integrate and how to have boundaries and protect yourself. To say something about sensitivity. I did not understand that. I did not understand. Want to swap places? (laughs) I did not understand what sensitivity meant because here we're normal. We're I'm not, I'm not extra sensitive. I didn't realize that because I feel normal at the end of a retreat with everybody else. And I came from a family that were Christians and don't have any understanding of Dhamma. And so every retreat, it was like I was coming out of silence and we'd have a party, big, big family party. I'm talking black people family party. So it's a lot of noise and it's a lot of drinking and there's a lot of drama, but I'm coming out of silence. So they felt like this is what I should do. And I thought this is what I should do because we're family and we do family parties. And so I would go, I would leave Cloud Mountain And I would drive the two and a half hours to get to my sister's house. And then we would start preparing for the party. I swear it took about two hours of being in that house before I'm yelling at people, cussing at people. And I go in the bathroom and I'm trying to find myself, find my dama. I knew I have it. (laughs) And my family would say things like, is this what they teach you on the church? (laughs) It's like, you know, you could go to a Christian retreat and it would not be so bad. It doesn't cost so much. And I could not, I kept trying my best to make myself not be that way. 
I want to be peaceful. So I kept trying, trying, trying. And then one day my car did not start. And I was on my way to a treat. I called my friend frantically and she goes, well, I'll drive you. And so I texted my sister on the way to the retreat and said, we cannot do the party tonight because I don't, my car's not working. We'll have to do it a week or two after the retreat's over with. And she goes, oh, okay, that's fine. Because you had to get, I didn't know anything's wrong here. I just thought I I, I can't do it. I'm I'm not good enough. I got to work harder. I got to, I need to find my peace and stay and hold it. Two weeks later, I'm not as still as I was. I've like begin to resonate more on the level with everybody else. I'm not as sensitive as I was. So now when I went to the party, my practice had time to incorporate itself. So what I'm pointing to is you won't know how sensitive you are until you get ready to lose it on someone. And then, I just don't want you to think you lost your practice. You didn't. It is that you are sensitive. That's what that's speaking to. That I can't take this. That's speaking to you are sensitive. So there's a way you can just say, oh, 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 I see. I just need to go and settle a little bit. I need to go home. I'm not going to go to the party right after the retreat. I'm going to go home. And even if you go home to a family and everybody's talking and we're all there and you're back and the texts are coming in, how was it? It's almost like you have to give yourself permission to put that phone on silence and just don't answer. That's it. Don't answer. Say, I lost my phone. (laughs) Who knew? I lost it. And it turns out it was under the seat of my prayer. We had to go get it. (laughs) But try to keep some distance until you recognize how sensitive you are. And then if you lose it, if you get all upset, You're at the airport and you're about to cuss someone out. If that happens, begin to recognize you didn't lose your samadhi. You didn't lose something. You're just extra sensitive. So you are, that sensitivity means you are resonating at a wavelength that is different than the wavelength that is out there. And you can tell how long it took you to get to this wavelength when you got here because you were resonating when you got here on a different wavelength. That's what this is about. This is about discernment. And after a while, like what Devin says, you learn how to balance that energy and you learn what works, what doesn't work, what's good, what's not good. That's all it is. So give yourself permission to lose it. You don't have to yell at people, but you you will feel it inside that you're losing it. Give yourself more permission. about panic attacks than yelling at people. Yeah. So even with the panic attacks and this kind of hyperventilation, there are two things that you have learned here. One is that you know how to go away to your space. Go away. The bathroom is your friend. I have spent more time at, when I would be at work in the middle of a trial. I, I'm about to lose it, and I'd ask to go to the restroom. It's sort of like this. I begin to realize, especially for women, because we all have stalls. I don't know if they have stalls in men's room. I hope so. But <laughs> that's the place you go to. I love it that Eugene always brings up urinating and defecating because (laughs) the Buddha talked about that and he pointed to that. And basically what I think he's saying is there is no place that you cannot practice. 
So if it means that there's so much stuff all over the world, go in the bathroom, take a shower. If you don't feel like taking a shower on, turn the water on so everybody else thinks you're in the shower. You just sit on the toilet and this is your meditation cushion and you're fine. You find your way to come in contact with some peace and you learn to practice feeling this level of sensitivity that says, I need to take care of me. I need to do this for me. I'm not doing this for anyone else, doing it for me. And then make sure you have a sangha so that you have someone else that you can talk to so that you have a group of people that think like us. And you can actually go and talk about it and not just be in a world where you have this practice and I'm all tucked in, but I can't talk about it with anyone else because it's not really going to make sense to anyone else. So you find a sangha that you can see once a week, whatever, so you have a kind of a mantra, and then the bathroom is your friend. <laughs> you Thank go you. there. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Hi. Thank you. So for my question, um, as far as I understand, you know, meditation is a practice that's thousands of years old and has taken many forms depending on the school, et cetera. And in recent years, I think in America, there's a very, it's gotten real popular. You know, there'd be the apps and there are, there's this brand of meditation that's very divorced from the Dharma. It's very like, biohacky, performance-enhancing type of thing in the Silicon Valley circles. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it because I feel like it's missing a lot. Um, But I certainly do know people who are into it and they're not into the spiritual part of it. Um, And they will be asking me about how the retreat was. And um, so I was wondering, like, do you have opinions about that sort of meditation and any advice on how I talk to them about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can speak to that a bit. Tell you a story. Um, in 2002, I was studying psychology in, in college. And I was finding meditation and some of the first, yeah, 2000, 2001, I had started meditating and I had some teachers and I wanted to do my undergraduate thesis on meditation, right? My psych, psychology undergraduate. And I went into my, my supervisor or my advisor and, um, and she looked at me when I told her, I was like, I want to study meditation for kids who have ADHD. I want to see the impact. She said, as long as you're willing to give up your career in psychology, you're welcome to study meditation. <laughs> no problem. Nobody will take you seriously. But sure, you know, it's a small college. You can do that. So I had her support and I started, <laughs> she let me do it. Nobody was studying meditation at that time, except for Dr. Richie Davidson. So in 2002, 2003, he was just putting out his first papers on the benefits of meditation. So I wrote about those, that research in my undergraduate thesis. And he was kind of a, a role model for me. I so admired what he was doing. And he's a very serious Buddhist. You know, he studies with His Holiness Dalai Lama and Mingyur Rinpoche. So I knew that even though he was really studying it in a secular way, and all these years later, you know, he's published so many papers now and he's at his neuroscience lab in Madison. He's like the forerunner of why all these people want to meditate now because he's shown that they have really true benefits. So like 15 years later, I'd had all this other experience. I went to Asia, you know, I was a high school teacher, college teacher, um, ended up back in Madison, Wisconsin, turns out because my partner was doing his PhD with Richie. So I got to meet him. And then I got to work in his lab. And I was one of those teachers that was going into the schools and going into the hospitals, totally secular mindfulness, but teaching people, helping professionals, you know, new teachers who needed mindfulness to keep it real in the classroom, 
all of the secular mindfulness that we were doing. And meanwhile, you know, very serious Buddhist. And I had all these questions about what is this? Are we leaving, you know, the core of it? Is this even ethical, you know, to sort of extract? Does it feel extracting to take this out and then share it with everyone who might have different intentions and values? And I still feel mixed about it, like you, a little bit. The commodification and the capitalism and the selling of it, all of that feels very, gives me the, you know, it's creepy. Um, And having taught in all those places and seeing how the secular mindfulness movement is happening, it's benefiting so many people, right? People who had never been exposed before just know how to feel their feet in the middle of a chaotic classroom going to change the lives of all those children, right? So this is just my personal journey with it. What I noticed that I believed in all that secular stuff, right? I think it's still useful, useful skills, even if it's not embedded in Dharma. But the most important thing that we do leave out often on those apps is the ethics of it, right? It's not wise mindfulness if it's not grounded in non-harming, and in sila. So we just we need to teach the precepts, right? We need to teach all of this, the first foundation as dana, as generosity, as integrity, as honesty, right? Living an upright life. And so that's why when we finished in Madison, we wrote this small book, my partner and I, it's called How Not to Be a Hot Mess. Um, and it was really meant to be for all those folks who weren't necessarily Buddhist or going to be in the Dharma, but who were learning to meditate and who, who were curious about what about the ethics of this, right? So it explains these five precepts, how to live in a way that's in alignment with our values. It doesn't have to be prescribing to a religion, but I think as long as we're grounded in that sense of we're, we're meditating for our benefit and for the benefit of others, then I think it's okay, you know? Might have a variety of intentions, but I think Sila is the starting place. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I wanted to ask something um, now that you spoke about the uh, five precepts and uh, uh, one is uh, regarding the um, taking of um, intoxicants, right? And um, uh, I wanted to understand what your view is regarding there, there is as part of the, of the, um, um, this movement of consciousness and awakening that uh, is is growing. Uh, there's a big role played by certain um, 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 certain um, natural and also non natural substances that can be used to uh, help to uh, uh, um, uh, you know to uh, can can facilitate uh, awakening through alterated state of consciousness and also can help a lot the heart opening. So I wanted to understand, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, this is my first retreat. I'm, I don't consider myself, um, I can't, I cannot call myself a Buddhist because I don't know well the teachings, but it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that the teaching of the Buddha is that you should not take any sort of, uh, substances is that is that right? So how do you uh, relate to that when it comes to use of plant medicine and also uh, some chemicals that have that more and more are, are shown also from you know um, uh, 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 papers and and studies that are helping uh, also a lot of people that are uh, that unfortunately have a lot of uh, uh, trauma and stress to. Uh, get out of that and to uh, live a better life and to find their purpose and their way. (laughs) (laughs) That's me. Well, one, 
I think the Buddha is pointing to abstaining, like we do here, abstaining from intoxicants. It is a monastic type world that we're cultivating here. It's like semi-monastics, not all the rules. We're just doing the lay rules. But the abstaining is to keep the culture here safe so that everybody's sober and everybody can actually pay attention to what's going on with them. So then when you leave here, you're in this kind of, uh, you are refraining from abusing that's the language that changes. You're not necessarily in the abstaining. You're in the refraining from abusing intoxicants that uh, cloud the mind. And there's a couple of things that I think about as, as a Buddhist. So I've been a practicing Buddhist for 20, 25 years. And there, there is wisdom in the psychedelics and some of the plant medicine that goes around. So if you are partaking with a guide that's doing a spiritual practice, it has been a part of spiritual practice for eons. And so there's no, there's no line for your choice to actually use a uh, plant medicine through a spiritual practice. I think that's a choice that any lay person can make on their own. And they're doing it with a guide under particular constraints. There's what Devin is pointing to, sila inherent within these guides and the rules that they uh, set in the container for taking it. That's different than the way we tend to use Something we find out gives you an altered state, and we use it as recreation. So the recreation is pointing more towards the abusing the substance that clouds the mind. So you're not, um, you are using it for some recreation to point to something, but not necessarily from the respect of the plant that can help open the mind or open the heart. So that's really what you're pointing to. Even the medical advances that we have now with mushrooms uh, and uh, psychology or marijuana, marijuana and pain, all of this is done with this kind of uh, taking care to point it towards the support that it gives and not this kind of haphazard recreational I just want to get high kind of energy, or I just want to see. That's what I think the line is. That's where the, the actual discernment has to come. Are you using what was always indigenous, ancient uh, support that shamans gave to people as some kind of flippant recreational thing, or are you keeping in the guidelines of it as a sacred plant that is supportive of your awakening. That is a choice that I think lay people, we just face that choice when we decide to start thinking about plant medicine. So that's really, that's where I would fall on it. So I, I'd say it's your own choice, but you're, for the precept side, it's whether or not you're abusing it or whether or not you're actually treating it with the respect it deserves. And then we'll take this question here, and then I guess, uh, all right, that'll be the last one then. It's not actually a question. Okay. Uh, it's, I guess I want to I share something as a thank you to the teachers. Um, look, I was, I was aware, and I'm nervous, I'm totally nervous doing this, but here I am. Um, as we're talking about leaving, I was thinking about, you know, we're still here. And, and one of the things that we're still here doing is the practice of Donna. Like we're not done with that yet. And it's such a, it's been such a, it's been such a transformative practice for me. And I just want to share it because I don't, I'm out here and you're over there. And I think it's easier as a practitioner. When I started this practice in 2004 with Tara Brock in DC, I was a graduate student. I had no money. 
And, and I also had a really challenged relationship with money and, you know, the Donna practice and like thinking about like, what am I going to give and how much and, you know, all of my conditioning, the scarcity, the, my own self-neglect, you know, lack of abundance, all those things were like totally in the practice. And like when I think about on retreat, the two things, two, two, two experiences that have been the most powerful, one is bathroom cleaning meditation. <laughs> so anyone in here who's done bathroom work meditation, I bow, I bow. <laughs> And, and Donna. And so I just want to share it as like, please like take it as a practice because these people, these teachers, these teachings, I mean, they've changed my life. My, my life is full of the love and abundance and in every way because of all of this and, and all of you. Um, so yeah, I just, I just want to share, don't shortchange yourself on what the Donna practice could do for you. That's really good. That's good. Thank you. Hi. So over the years, as my practice has deepened, my values have changed as well. And I've changed my life around it. I've changed the people that I surround myself with. But over COVID, I was spending more and more time with my family, my parents, and their values are now very different from mine. And so I'm going to be going back to them now. So I'm thinking about it. It's hard. It's really hard spending time with them. But as they get older, I'm going to be needing to spend more time with them. And part of me is thinking, well, you should just take it as practice. It's all practice. It's all opportunity for practice. And part of me is thinking, my practice is sliding backwards when I'm with them. I can feel it. And it's not healthy for me to be spending this much time with them. So how would you recommend approaching that? I'm feeling the poignancy in that question, it's very real. And it reminds me a bit of Jack Cornfield, who says, if you want to know how enlightened you are, go spend a week with your family. <laughs> yeah. It really is where the rubber meets the road. And I don't have any clear-cut answer for you. I think it's a lot of it is listening to your own inner guide and a good balance of the generosity of your time and your presence with them, right? Just having you so steeped in your own practice and the Dharma, that's going to ripple out and they'll feel it even if they don't know what they're feeling. So just bringing your practice into the field with them is a gift. And then knowing the limitations of that generosity, right? You can't always push and push and push. So you have to know your own boundaries too. It's a little bit like the sensitivity question, you know, like how do you protect yourself? Um, so I think there's wisdom in, in what you just said about feeling your practice and how it's more difficult around them. So I would titrate that, you know, how much can you be with them? Stay in your body, stay in your practice. And then know it's sort of humbling, but when is that? kind of run out that generosity and when is it time to really take care of yourself? You know, healthy boundaries like that. But I can say for me, and Dawn's going to talk a little bit more about equanimity. I think the equanimity practice is so key with all, everybody out there, you know, because people are very complex. They're holding so much these days, you know, these times of COVID and, and a lot of people don't have the Dharma you know, they're coming from a really different place. And there's something protective about cultivating all this love and compassion and joy for the world. And then the equanimity piece is very protective, right? It says, I can wish you well. I can do all I can here in my little world. But in the end of the day, you're giving them back their karma, right? Your happiness and unhappiness depend on your mental habits. 
not on my wishes for you. And it can feel cool, but it's actually deep love. Giving them back their path, their journey, right? Your journey is yours. And I can do as much as I can. I can wish you well. I don't want you to suffer. But I also really respect your path, right? It's your mind, your heart. So some kind of formal equanimity practice might really be helpful. And the traditional phrase, it took a little while for me to to love it, but now I love it. You know, really saying to yourself, you're the owner of your karma. You know, your happiness and unhappiness depend on your mental habits and not on my wishes for you. So you do equanimity for them, you can do equanimity for you, and it will help that kind of steadiness that can trust your practice and also know your, your clear limits, your boundaries like that. Yeah. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, good. I'm going to share a little bit also here. Because I, too, had a family that was very, very different. And the more I got into the Dhamma, the more the, dis- differ- the differences and the distinctions got clearer and clearer and clearer. There is something that can happen to us in this world in Dhamma that we can begin to think we are now right, they are now wrong. And that line there feels like a boundary. Oh, I'm right, so i got to be with the right people. They are wrong. And I found that instead of thinking of my family members as being wrong in the way that they were thinking, I began to see what was skillful, what was not. And some of what they did was skillful for them and not They drank more than I wanted to drink, and I could see that their drinking and the way that they were was skillful for them, because unless you're ready to deal with some pain and suffering, the drinking is going to be the best thing that's going to help you. So the skillfulness of their behavior, I stopped judging their behavior. And then I did one other thing that's very different. So usually when I set a boundary before really learning to discern in the Dhamma, I set a boundary for what I expected them to do. I really was setting boundaries on them. Don't do this. Don't do that. Tone down all that drinking. You need to be like this. All my boundaries were on other people. And no one ever lived up to those boundaries. They were stepping all over them, crossing them, messing up. There was just no respect for my boundary that I gave them. (laughs) Why does that happen? (laughs) So what I learned was real healthy boundaries are what I gave myself. So when I've had enough of all the drinking, I need to leave. That's just it. And sometimes I left earlier than normal, and sometimes I left later. But the harm that came from their drinking or arguing or all that we used to do, that was not their responsibility. It became my responsibility to know my limit and take care of me. And that understanding allowed me the freedom to go and be with them And when I came up against my own boundary, was I taking care of myself? That's what it really became. And it's not, I never left with a sense of, I got to go. You people are too much. It was never like that. It was more like, I got to be at work at 10 o'clock. I got to be at work at 8 o'clock. And I I do, I must say something for the lying. So... (laughs) I wouldn't, I don't call it lying. I call it making up stuff. So I would make up stuff. I got a seven o'clock student. I got to see, I got to go. And they're like, oh, we don't want to see you go. I'm like, I know, but I got to go. Seven o'clock student. And I would leave. (laughs) There's no student at seven o'clock. But I needed to leave. And I needed, and family is weird because... There's an expectation that you stay until we all leave. And so I came up with a way to be able to leave them and not judge them. 
good, bad, or indifferent. That judgment is really unnecessary for us. You set the boundary for your own behavior, and that's what you're sticking to. That's within your keeping of your precepts. And you let them do whatever they need to do that's skillful for them. All right? Okay, good. Well, we have about 15 minutes to walk. And then we'll be back here for some um, equanimity. Thank you all for your questions. We tried to get as many as we could. So I'm glad that we got quite a bit. Good? All right. You don't have to wait for us. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.